I watched a uh, Vietnam War movie some years back, which was uh, based on actual events. A battle uh, to take uh, Hill 937, the hill also known as Hamburger Hill. That was the title of the film. And the film title itself invokes uh, horrible images of war. The movie, also in this regard, proved worthy of the title. At the end of the movie, U.S. forces had won the battle. A young soldier stands at the top of the hill, weary from ten days of fighting. He's covered in blood, the, his own blood, the blood of his friends, and the blood of his enemies. Carnage of war strewn from the bottom of the steep hill all the way to the top. Some of you may have seen the movie. A high-ranking commander arrives by helicopter to assess the outcome. And this young soldier in the movie asks a piercing question. He says, sir, why did we take this hill? The commander's demeanor and answer betrays the fact that there was no good reason to take the hill. The hill was shortly after surrendered, history tells us, not just by the movie. The horrible sacrifice was wasted and pointless. We sometimes find ourselves also bloodied by the struggles of this life. We are weary from the battle, and we identify with this young soldier's piercing question. But thank God we have a purpose. There is a reason for our struggle. Our mission is valid, and the battle is necessary. God put distance between ourselves and him in the Garden of Eden when humanity betrayed him there. Out of mercy, he separated himself because our new fallen condition meant death in his presence. It was an act of mercy that he separated. But God, since that time, has relentlessly and creatively, mercifully, made a way for our return to Eden, that place where we enjoy the fullness of his presence, the Shekinah glory of God. The path of restoration is difficult, but he has resourced us completely. Our victory is certain, but we must engage in the process to become like him and expand the sacred space. That was our purpose. That was our mission from the beginning, was to expand his sacred space in the Garden of Eden. We failed then, but he has resourced us to complete the mission, and that's the mission that we're on. We find an example of this in uh, Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4 where we are continuing our series on restoration. The people of Israel are returning to the realities of this struggle after experiencing ruin that results from following illusion. And that's the same position that we find ourselves in our lives. The title of my sermon today is The Purpose of Life. If you've heard my previous sermons, you'll recognize that I'm, I'm stuck 
in a theme of life, the life motif. But this is what I found here, and I hope that you will find some new insight and perspective on our purpose here on earth. The main idea for my sermon is uh, sustained restoration requires strategic organization and persistence in opposition. I I may have stumbled upon some literary device there, uh, so you literary geniuses can tell me if, uh, if I've somehow poetically inspired you. But I can assure you that uh, we'll have to put it in the category of even a blind squirrel finds a nut occasionally because I'm not a poet. But this is what I found there. In, in chapter 3, I found uh, a strategic organization that Nehemiah organized the people strategically to accomplish the mission. And in chapter 4, I found a persistence in opposition because we are opposed. And so I hope that you'll, you'll uh, reflect on these things that I have discovered as I've, discover, as I've been studying uh, these two chapters, continuing in, in this uh, series on restoration. <clears throat> Chapter 3 is a list, by the way, of unpronounceable names, long-forgotten people, but we can glean some lessons from the list. I'm not going to engage uh, verse by verse the list. If you have your Bibles, please open it and look at the list, though, because it, it is there are some peculiar things about the list that I want to point out, the way Nehemiah organized uh, for the building. <clears throat> First of all, I, I want to point out that the names are documented there. It's important to me that the names are documented. Now, we don't know these people. History has long forgotten them. They are recorded here in in Nehemiah. But it's important to identify with the mission of God. It's important to associate yourselves with the people of God in the struggle that we're in for restoration. Let the record show that my name is associated with the mission of God. And I think the record should show that we are all identified with that mission. If uh, evidence need be found, I pray that my name will be found among the evidence of the people who are on the mission for God. You're my people. And I want to identify with you and his mission. So I think that's an important part of what's in chapter 3, although it's not part of uh, my outline. I did find principles of strategic organization, though, there. And first of all, I found that the list, if you look down the list, scan down the list, you'll notice that it is an all-inclusive list. There are no boundaries of gender or economics or geography. People are from everywhere. A man and his daughters are working on the wall. And people of all different occupations. You'll notice in the list the high priest, rulers, farmers, goldsmiths, jewelers, perfume makers, merchants, gatekeepers, guards. It goes on and on and on. Your occupation is also represented there. The people of God are actively engaged in the mission of restoration. What stood out to me, though, 
besides the fact that ministry belongs to all of us. It, it is our collective job. Matthew has an occupation. We have an occupation. But it, the world might identify you by your occupation. But I believe that God identifies you by what you do with the margins of your life. The same with me, the same with Matthew, the same with all of us. What are you engaged in? What activities do you engage in in the margins of your life? We have to sleep and we have to eat and we have to have a place to survive and live and be sheltered. And so that dictates that we must consume a a, a large portion of our time with uh, taking care of these needs. But we have some margins that are left over. And although we serve God within those other activities, I believe that we are are most identified with Him and His work by what we engage in in those margins. These folks were engaged in the work. Even though the high priest, his function, as the world saw it, was in the temple. But he was out there, on the wall, engaged in the activity. And we must all also, regardless of what our occupation is, be engaged in this process. So it is all-inclusive. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves what we're doing with the margins of our life. God has resourced His mission 100% completely. Nothing is needed. The resources are all there. In the world, there is no need for world hunger. Because all of the resources are available. He has provided everything needed. There's only one thing lacking in God's kingdom. There's only one ability that He does not necessarily have. And that is your availability. We must engage. We must surrender, submit, and be part of His work. I know that I want to be. I want to identify with Him, His work, and His process. And we should all engage. I want you to notice also, it's not just all-inclusive in this chapter 3, the list that we see in chapter 3. It's also synchronized. Notice the, the, the term that happens time and time again in, in the chapter. Next to, next to, and next to. So adjacent to one another, all of these folks are shoulder to shoulder, next to, engaged in their work on the wall, in the process of restoration. I think back to my time uh, beginning in, as a soldier. We had to go to the weapons qualification range. And some of you uh, were in the military also, and you remember this process. And we had to do something similar. We're shoulder to shoulder. A lot is being taught on the weapons qualification range, not just how to hit your target, but how to trust your soldiers to your left and right to watch their lane. We have to engage our targets in our lane. And I believe there is a lesson to be taught here in how Nehemiah synchronized the effort. We must be synchronized. Focus on your task. Don't look to your right. We have to trust those men and women to our right and to our left to defend us from those threats that might come from those directions. We focus on our lane. If we divert our attention from our own responsibility to look over there and criticize how they're hitting their targets, 
we leave everyone exposed to our own uh, task that we're supposed to be focused on. So we should focus on our own task. Don't look left and right criticizing. There is obviously a room for us to be accountable to one another, but that doesn't necessarily mean critically assessing one another in how we obtain our objectives in our task and our mission. We're accountable. If someone is wrong and not correctly pursuing, it's fine. We are accountable to one another. But faithful servants who are serving alongside, don't be critical. Let's stay synchronized in our effort. As Nehemiah organized them, synchronized. If we focus on what others are doing, we also distract them. So in both ways, we are being detrimental to the cause of Christ. The command that the range control officer would give when it's time to engage your targets for the qualification, he would say, fires, watch your lane. And so I think that we should also be mindful of what's in our lane, our responsibility, and focus on being the best that God would have us be for the things that he has us doing in the process of restoration. Notice also that it's organic. Verse 21 through 29, we see multiple references to repairing, each in front of his own house. So this is an organic process. Our restoration begins at home. It has to be fully integrated, homegrown. Each person is focused in an area that's near their own home. So it is also, this is something I found about the organization and the structure for restoration is organic. And finally, in chapter 3, another element that I want to point out, there are many, okay, but these are just four that I, that I gleaned from the page. It is holistic. The wall and its gates represent a system which functions to establish boundaries in our life and to regulate what is allowed into our life and what must be eliminated from our lives. When properly implemented, the system helps us obtain a wholesome and healthy life of service. That's what the walls and the gates are. Our lives must be regulated. We need boundaries and barriers to establish that there is a difference between God and what he's trying to accomplish and the world and what they're trying to accomplish. And we must regulate what comes in and out. You'll notice that the chapter begins at the sheep gate and the priests are working at the sheep gate. And then it proceeds in a counterclockwise manner around the city walls of Jerusalem, gate by gate. There's 10 of them, I think, listed there. And he identifies who's working in which gate. And I don't want to allegorize here, but there are definite uh, representations of what we must regulate in our lives by these gates in the city of Jerusalem. And as they're restoring it, we must focus also on these aspects of the Christian life to be balanced and to be uh, healthy in our outlook on life. I'm not going to go gate by gate because there's just not time. And, and I can't fully develop all the links of Scripture to all the meanings of these gates. 
but some are so strong that you cannot overlook them. And I want to start at the sheep gate, the priest working at the sheep gate. The sheep represent sacrifice. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It begins at the sheep gate, and you'll notice at the end of the chapter, it ends back at the sheep gate, and Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and he is our all in all. And so, no restoration can occur apart from Jesus and his sacrificial work. So we must uh, first and foremost and continually focus on the cross for our restoration. It goes on to the fish gate, the old gate. Uh, some of what I came across said that uh, if it's it, the old gate representing truth, if it's, if it's new, it's not true. <laughs> it was what some, some folks said in, in, uh, in, in relation to that. And then it goes to the valley gate. I don't want to mention all the gates in explaining in detail, but I do want to stop at the dung gate. How would you like to be assigned that task? <laughs> the dung gate is the gate of elimination, and we must eliminate the garbage from our lives. And it's not a coincidence, I believe, that the next gate adjacent to the dung gate is the fountain gate, representative of the Spirit of God. We must, be, we must eliminate the garbage from our lives and then be filled, make room for the Spirit of God to fill our lives. And I think this is an important thing to focus on as we, as we uh, go along the path of restoration. Watergate is the next one mentioned, and water in Scripture always is associated, not always, but many times over, associated with the Word of God. It's interesting that the water gate is not being repaired. The horse gate representing battle, and then I want to mention also briefly the east gate. The east gate represents in our lives hope for the future, for the coming Messiah. In Ezekiel chapter 43, it is prophesied that when Jesus returns to establish his rule on earth during the millennial reign, he will enter the city of Jerusalem through the east gate, which, by the way, is sealed right now. You can go there right now and see that it's sealed, but I'm pretty sure the brick and mortar is not going to stop Jesus. The tomb didn't stop him, and so I'm pretty sure he's going to enter the city of Jerusalem, to establish his earthly rule through the east gate. The sealing of that gate was also prophesied in Ezekiel. The final gate is inspection gate, which speaks of judgment. And we will not be judged as in condemned, but we will give account for all that we do. And we will see reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is an important uh, part of maintaining balance in our lives in this system of walls and gates and how we organize ourselves for the mission of restoration. Those four elements are what I wanted to point out to you uh, that are in chapter 3. Chapter 3, like I said, is 
simply a list. And, but it's a list of how we're organized. And organized in this fashion, it seems that uh, success is, is guaranteed. It should be easy now, right? I mean, we have a good plan. We're organized uh, to a T. Nehemiah is a book on leadership. And Nehemiah is, 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 a, is a shining example of what a good leader will do. So having a good plan and being organized so well, it seems that victory uh, should just be given, right? It's a given now that we will succeed. But Nehemiah, in, we'll, we'll see, he, he didn't fully plan for Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law says that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And however much time you allocated to do a particular task, it will take a lot longer. And how, however much money you assign to accomplish it, it will take a lot more. And when you finally finish, a lot of people won't like what you've done. And that's Murphy's Law. And that's what we find happening uh, at the beginning of chapter 4. <clears throat> We're organized. Bob Jones, though, uh, founder of Bob Jones University, where I attended years and years and years ago, a long time ago, uh, for a year I attended that university. He said, the doors of opportunity open against the hinge of opposition. So the opposition is where Murphy's Law comes from. People will oppose us, no matter how well we're organized. And I want to talk about, in uh, chapter 4, uh, the devices of the enemy's opposition and also uh, how we can uh, capitalize on the opportunities that God has for us. How should we respond to the opposition? I'm going to go through the chapter, though, first talking about the opposition and how that opposition uh, goes through a progression. And then I'm going to come back and talk about how we should respond to that opposition. I'm not sure that's the best way to do it, but it's just the way I've chosen. So first of all, uh, in verses 1 through 3, I'm going to engage the, the uh, narrative now because we've, we've left, left the list and now we have before us in chapter 4 a narrative of what happened after they were organized for the restoration. So in verse, uh, verses 1 through 3, let's read that. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. So we find here, the beginning of chapter 4, the enemy's first device, not necessarily his first device, but the first one in this chapter, is the device of ridicule. And I think it's first important for us to notice that we do have an enemy. 
There are enemies at the gates. And we have to be prepared for that enemy. So don't be surprised. I want to say almost, but it's not in the scripture here, get over it, okay? Because it will happen. It's going to happen. Jesus promised that it would happen. The New Testament is full of promises that you will be opposed, that the world will hate you. Jesus said they hated me. They'll hate you for the same reason. And why do they hate us? They hate you and I when we're engaged in this process of expanding sacred space. They hate us because we remind them that their life is not right with God without even directly focusing on them. Just the act of worshiping Him highlights the fact that it's a necessary thing that we must do. And so the world will hate us. Don't even give it a second thought. Anticipate it. Expect it. It's coming. The opposition. And they will ridicule us for our love of God. And just simply trying to lead a life that is honoring to Him and trying to restore our lives back to a position of communion with God. The world will hate us. They do hate us. It's anticipated. I want to also point out that these are valid questions. Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifice? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? These are valid questions. These are questions that we have to address. Now, it was ridicule for them because God was not in their equation. We need to remember the truth that's in their taunts, that we are feeble. We are weak. We're trying to accomplish something that is impossible. It cannot be done. These walls that they're trying to build was an impossible task for them. But our objective that is correlated with that process of building the wall, our objective is impossible. Cannot be done without God in the equation. And we need to remember that truth. Because that truth is what drives us to a correct response. I don't want to get to the response yet. Because I'm going to go through the chapter and talk about each of the enemy's devices of opposition. And the first one is ridicule. The second one that we find is threat. I'll make sure I didn't skip a page. I've got a page missing here, but it it, it continues here. Uh, Verse 7 through 8. Let's read that passage. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So here we have an escalation in the opposition by threats. It's important for us to recognize that the enemy also has a plan and a strategy. 
He is carefully our enemy, and all those in that camp are carefully considering how we can be stopped. They are relentless. They will not quit. Not going to happen. We will be opposed. What does this mean, though, stir up trouble? I think this, this is exposing part of their plan. They want to stir up trouble. I think what they intend on doing is turning the people against one another. Stir up trouble. Doubts and criticisms within the people of God who are trying uh, to accomplish something for God. That's part of their plan, to stir up trouble. <clears throat> I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, are, are we subject to that? Are we giving in to that? Are we being critical of one another? Do you criticize or do you galvanize? Galvanize is such a positive word. Galvanize means that we would, it, the, the definition is to motivate to immediate action. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. He was galvanizing the people to do the work of God, organized the way he, he organized it, and then responding to these criticisms and this opposition. And we must be careful that we are part of Nehemiah's leadership and what he's trying to lead us into and not succumb to the enemy's desire to divide us, because that's what they're trying to do here. Notice also in verse 10, <clears throat> he escalates our enemy, escalates from threats to discouragement. And let's read verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. The task is too big, but we've already said that, <laughs> right? The task is too big. It's an impossible mission that we're trying to accomplish. It literally is. It cannot be done by us alone. So all they're doing is agreeing with the enemy's assessment that does not put God in the equation. So they're right, actually, it can't be done. But we can't agree with the enemy. We can't succumb to this discouragement. See, they, they gave in. They are discouraged. And then also look, uh, the enemy will use fear in verse 11 and 12. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Their objective is to end the work. And so now we see that the enemy is trying to instill fear. Discouragement and fear is a paralyzing combination. When we get discouraged and fearful, we're done. We, we have to regroup. We have to refocus. We have to find the source of our strength again. Because discouragement and fear will stop you in your tracks. Again, because we're trying to accomplish something that is impossible, right? 
So those are the devices of the enemy that I found as we went down through uh, chapter 4. Ridicule, verses 1 through 3. Threats in 7 and 8. Discouragement in verse 10. And fear in verses 11 and 12. Now, let's go back and look at Nehemiah's response because Nehemiah responded correctly. If I had any criticism for Nehemiah and what he did, that would be foolish, but I'm going to say it anyway, (laughs) is that he was not prepared. He was reactionary when it came to the enemy. He reacted and he responded correctly. But he wasn't prepared ahead of time. And I don't think that we have to suffer that same fate. Because we know now, Nehemiah led the way. Uh, Jesus led the way. All, everyone before us led the way. We now know the enemy is there and we can prepare now and be ready not be surprised. I think God is disappointed possibly, at what it takes to knock us off of our horse of devotion. These were real threats. I mean, do, do we actually face these, this, this type of opposition? And yet, we, we sometimes find ourselves wanting to quit. I mean, what does it take? Just, just an unkind word? Uh, the elder not being exactly right, because I'm not right. None of the elders are exactly right. We are, we are failed people. I am, I, I am, among all of you guys, probably the most failed individual. <laughs> when it, when it, if, you really, if you really measure it, especially by the world standards. So listen, we, we, we can't give up so easy. We can't quit so easy. Because victory is certain. It just requires us to engage. I want to mention this now before we go into Nehemiah's response. God wins. The only question is, will you be with Him? That's the question for us. God wins. So let's just team up with Him and let's spend our lives in cooperation with Him for those objectives. Let's look now at verses 4 through 6. Tools for seizing opportunity. That's what God gives us. He actually gives us the opportunity to work with Him on His team. He doesn't need us. I've said this so many times. God doesn't need me or you. But he gives us the opportunity to work with him. And here are some opportunities that I found. Tools for seizing the opportunity, I should say. Uh, In verses 4 through 6, let's read that. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from their sight, from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Another translation says, they have provoked your anger, talking to God. 
I want to point out, this is what Nehemiah did after the ridicule. This was his response. I want to point out some things that he did, but before I do that, do that let's notice what Nehemiah did not do. Nehemiah did not answer in kind. Probably because he recognized the truth in their taunts. He recognized that we are feeble, like you said. We're weak. So recognizing that truth, it caused him to correctly respond and turn to God, the source of our strength. And we need to do the same. Nehemiah did not get a lawyer or try to pass a new law. He had the mandate of the king to do the work that he was doing. And yet, all he did was pray and continue working. Nehemiah prayed because he knew that God was his only recourse, recognizing the truth of what they were saying. God is our only recourse. It's the only place to turn. Anything else is just saber-rattling. Notice also that Nehemiah prayed first. His first recourse, his first response, his first action is to pray. I believe that if we prayed over everything that we intend to do first, there are many things that we would not do. Think back now, because I'm doing the same thing. (laughs) Think back over the activities of the past months. If you had prayed over every one of them, how many of those things would you have not actually done? I can think of some. I wish I hadn't done those things. And if I had prayed, God would have said, what are you asking for? That's ridiculous. That's not, I'm not in that. Don't go there. Don't do that. So we need to remember that. Pray over everything. Prayer empowers us to do the things we should and prevents us from doing the things we should not. So pray first. Nehemiah also prayed often. Look at throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed. He always responded by prayer first. That's why he's so successful. He's tapped into the source of our strength. I I read a lot of critical analysis on Nehemiah's prayer. Some said that uh, this was a prayer under the law and this is not how we should pray today. And I totally reject that. This prayer stands by itself. It's a valid prayer. It's a kingdom prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer because it was It was criticized also against the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And the next couple of lines is what Nehemiah prayed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is what Nehemiah is praying. He's literally saying, Lord, I am engaged in your work. I am kingdom building in cooperation with you. There are some things I can't take care of. So you take care of these things. You take care of us in this same way when we rejected you outright. You sent us into exile. You did these things to us, literally. He did these same things. God did these things to the people of Israel that he's praying now. Nehemiah is like, we're back. We're with you, Lord. Now we're engaged in this work, and now you do to this enemy what we cannot do. 
So see, this prayer is a kingdom prayer. When we stop building our own house and devote ourselves to building God's house, these prayers come from within us. It's a kingdom prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And then Nehemiah continued to work. By prayer, we should leave to God what we cannot do and then get to work on the things that he has empowered us to do and resourced us to do. And that was Nehemiah's prayer. Again, he didn't lawyer up. He just simply said, Lord, take care of your things. These are your things. I can't do this, but I can do these other things that you have given me. And that's how we should pray. So first of all, Nehemiah prayed and worked and his response to ridicule. He focused on the task. He wasn't diverted. We should do the same. And then notice in verse 9, his response to the threats. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So they threatened them now, and Nehemiah prayed again. And he posted a guard, and we have to do the same thing. We have to post a watch in our life. Post a watch in the areas where these threats are coming. And how do we post a watch? We are joined together in this body of believers to accomplish certain tasks for one another. As we said on the, on the, the qualification, the weapons qualification line, we trust one another. We cover one another's blind spots. We commit to accountability to one another. And this is how we post a watch. We are watching for one another. We have to engage in this fashion. This is how we proceed with our restoration by posting a watch. Pray and watch is what Nehemiah did in response to threats. Still pray and post a watch. And our accountability to one another is the primary means by which we watch for one another. And we also notice in verse 13, Nehemiah's response to the discouragement, we must also know our own weaknesses. Let's read verse 13. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Know your weaknesses, the low places in the wall, where you're most vulnerable. We have to know ourselves. Uh, this was, uh, if you've ever read uh, Sun Tzu's, art of war. You've probably all heard most of his quotes anyway. This is one of his most prominently known quotes. Know thyself. Know your enemies. Sun Tzu, the art of war. We have to know our own weaknesses and we have to fortify in those areas. Men, are you prone to internet pornography? Then you need to set a boundary that would destroy you, it would destroy your family, it would destroy everything that you're working for. Post a, set a boundary. Fortify the position in those weak areas. We all have these weak areas in our lives, don't we? And we need to fortify those areas. As Nehemiah did in verse 13, after discouragement, okay, he said, Okay, we have some weaknesses. We have susceptibilities in these spots. And this is causing us to 
to be discouraged, let's fortify. So let's fortify the positions in the weak areas of our lives. There are so many other areas I wanted to go to, but I'm, run, I'm out of time, and so I have to proceed. Matthew 29, 30, though, says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This is, this is what our defense is. This is how we fortify our position. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's not literally saying, tear out your eye. Someone teaching that is just not interpreting correctly the Scripture. But what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to take a drink of beer and it leads to three or four or five, then don't do it. Just stop. Don't Don't take the first drink. You're susceptible. You're weak in that area. Stay away from it. Set a boundary. That's what Jesus is saying here. Know your weakness. And also in verse 14, Nehemiah says, keep God in the equation. This is what, this is Nehemiah's response to fear. He says to keep God in the equation. Let's read uh, verse 14. He says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. We must keep God in the equation. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. We are feeble. We are The, the, the ruin that we're trying to overcome is insurmountable. The task is impossible. But God majors in the impossible. And so we have to keep him in the equation. Verse 15, look at their plot. He says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. It turns out that the enemy knows God better than we do, and he was actually just engaged in a lot of saber-rattling. Sun Tzu also says, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And if the enemy can discourage you and strike fear in your heart, then he can defeat you without even fighting, actual fighting. See, the enemy doesn't have full conviction that he's going to draw the saber and engage the business in, in battle. Because he knows that when we call on God, victory is ours. So he is relegated to strike fear and discouragement. And all we have to do is call on God. Keep God in the equation. James 4, 7 says, it was read this morning, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In conclusion, I want to read uh, verses 16 through 23 with some final comments. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, 
and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when we went for water. The example we have here at the end of chapter 4 is that we must be organized and equipped for the building and for the battle. The Sword and the Trial is a publication that was uh, published by Charles Spurgeon in his, in his work uh, there in uh, England based on this passage, the sword and the trial, organized and equipped for the battle and the building. The final posture of the people here is the correct posture. God wants all of you. He wants all of you at work, at home, and in the margins of your life. We see here that the people are working, watching, fortifying weaknesses, and remembering that victory comes from God. Our God will fight for us, engaged but trusting. They are giving more now than they originally bargained for. Because their entire existence now is centered and focused on building the city of God. But that is the path for God's seekers. He demands all of you because He deserves nothing less. Do not spend your life building your kingdom. And ask yourself at the end, why did I take this hill? Engage your life for the purpose of building the kingdom of God. And victory is ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to join with you and engage in this process of restoring our lives back to that place in the Garden of Eden where we have full and complete communion with you. Thank you for the opportunity. And we do ask your continued strength and your spirit to empower us for the struggle ahead. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.